I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. Hello, you're listening to the HCSS podcast. My name is Noah Wanabo, assistant analyst with the Hague Center for Strategic Studies and your host today. Today, we're talking with Paul Verhagen, data analyst with HCSS, who focuses on regional dynamics in Asia and quantified methods. Now, Paul, you just wrote a snapshot on the trade implications of the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal. Why did you decide to focus on that? Uh, That's a good question. So the U.S. withdrawal from the nuclear deal has been quite a hot topic, and there's plenty of analysis that deals with either domestic political implications or geopolitical implications. Uh, But we really like to look at the uh, data side of things. So we try to look at trade data uh, to figure out what that might tell us about the potential consequence of uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the nuclear deal. You looked at Iranian trade between 2015 and 2017. So why did you choose that time frame and what can that tell us about the uh, potential future implications of the U.S. withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal? Yeah, so the nuclear deal or or the sanctions that preceded the nuclear deal were specifically aimed at uh, curtailing investment in Iran and reducing their ability to export oil. Uh, So we would want to know what the lifting of these sanctions did for the Iranian economy under under the logic that when the U.S. withdraws that you basically revert to an economic situation like it was in 2015. So the first year that we have data from uh, before the sanctions 2015 Now, last year that we have data from when the sanctions were lifted is 2017. So if you look at the economic evolution of Iran over that time period, you have some indication as to what changes are going to be reversed with the U.S.'s withdrawal. And what were some of the key findings from the economic data that you examined? Well, so we looked at two different metrics of trade. So the first thing we looked at is... um, share in Iranian exports and imports. So if you will, what market share each country has captured between 2015 and 2017. And this will tell you something about who has uh, increased their their presence in the Iranian market. And if you look at exports from Iran, which is primarily Iran selling oil, then you'll see that the European Union and the Republic of Korea primarily have uh, been have jumped at this opportunity to buy this newly available oil. The European Union increased its share by something like 13%, uh, and the Republic of Korea did by 5%. On the flip side of this, um, China lost almost 13% of its share in, in the Iranian economy. So you could argue that, to that extent, the Iran nuclear deal actually reduced Chinese influence uh, within Iran. So, Paul, can you take us back a moment and explain a bit how we ended up with the Iran nuclear deal in the first place? So when President Obama was first elected in 2008, uh, he explicitly said that he would try and approach countries with an open hand if they were willing to unclench their fist. To those who cling to power through corruption and deceit and the silencing of dissent, know that you are on the wrong side of history but that we will extend a hand if you are willing to unclench your fist. In 2012, some really restrictive sanctions were put on, the, uh, were put on Iran, in particular to its export uh, of petroleum and its ability to uh, have foreign investment in Iran. And there were some really, these were really tough sanctions and really hurt the Iranian economy. There was high unemployment, there was inflation, um, there were falling oil exports, so they put a lot of pressure on Iran to actually come back to the table. It's the so-called maximum pressure campaign. Uh, 
2013, President Rouhani was elected on a promise, explicit campaign promise, to try and normalize relationships with the West, uh, to sign a nuclear deal, get the sanctions lifted, and he promised a sort of economic revival, a cornucopia of wealth that would flow to Iran once this happened. And when he got elected, he, one of the first things he did was reform the State Department of Iran to uh, be suitable for talks with the United States. So the nuclear deal is signed. Uh, what are the effects? So there was huge economic growth in Iran in, in 2016. They saw something like 13% GDP growth rate. This is sort of China levels of economic growth. And the year before, they were actually in a negative growth rate. So for Iran, it's been hugely beneficial. They had these new markets that they could sell oil to. And as mentioned in the snapshot, it was especially the European Union and the Republic of Korea to critical US allies that weren't able to buy oil before that really jumped at the opportunity to, to purchase new oil. Uh, on a similar note, exports also became available to Iran. So uh, the Iranian economy also because of these sanctions was really not able to modernize itself. And their airline is actually a good example of, of how you saw that. Uh, Iran Airlines uh, was essentially running really old airplanes that were just kind of falling apart uh, mostly because they weren't able to buy new technology from companies like Airbus or Boeing. So part of the Iran nuclear deal was also uh, sort of deals with these large, uh, large companies such as Airbus and Boeing to modernize the Iranian uh, uh, air fleet. Okay, so following the lifting of sanctions, uh, Iran's economy was picking up, uh, trade was increasing. Uh, what happened then? Well, the 2016 U.S. election happened. I've been doing deals for a long time. I've been making lots of wonderful deals, great deals. That's what I do. Never, ever, ever in my life have I seen any transaction so incompetently negotiated as our deal with Iran. And I mean never. So basically, no matter what would have happened in the 2016 elections, it would have been an important point in the evolution of the nuclear deal largely because the nuclear deal was never ratified by the U.S. Senate. It was always a, an informal agreement and was therefore always going to be subject to a sort of popularity test uh, in 2016. And it's, it really became a partisan issue. There were 18 Republicans that were against the deal and there were four Democrats that were for the deal. That's uh, all of them on both sides. Um, obviously, the election of Trump sort of uh, strengthened this effect. Uh, even if other candidates that were Republican would have pulled out of the deal, it's questionable if they would have pulled out of it so abruptly. But even the general sort of uh, chaos around the 2016 election and the rhetoric around it was already disincentivizing Western companies of investing into Iran, which was part of the, the big promise that Iran had given to the Iranian people, that there would be investment, there would be jobs, there would be economic growth. And even if that was true on the macro level for Iran, it hadn't quite yet trickled down to the middle class. Uh, and part of this was that huge protests were uh, sparked in late 2017 and early 2018 uh, against the Rouhani regime that had explicitly promised this economic revival and the earlier, earlier market liberalizations and media liberalizations that Rouhani put through, such as internet access, uh, came back in some ways to, to bite him. Interesting. Uh, and now backing up for a second, can you just give us a brief overview of what the Iranian economy looks like? Yeah, so, so as said before, Iran, uh, Iran's economy essentially revolves entirely around oil. It, it makes up either directly or indirectly something like 90% of their export products. 
Um, so 60% of it is, is just petroleum, and another 30% is petroleum-related chemicals. And then there are some relatively minor stuff like uh, Persian rugs and pistachios and saffron are some of the things that they export. So you mentioned that Iran has significantly increased its oil exports uh, since the lifting of sanctions. What did their oil exports look like both during the sanctions as well as before? Yeah, so this goes a bit to the history of like Iran's relationship with the West. Uh, Iran used to be, is uh, still a huge export of oil. It's one of the biggest in the world. It's, it's an energy superpower, essentially. Um, but interestingly enough, the United States used to buy uh, a tremendous amount of oil from Iran before the Islamic Revolution, so before 1979. Uh, and it, it used to play the sort of Saudi Arabia-esque role of, of, of having American arms, having really good relationships with the United States, and selling a tremendous amount of oil. And it's only recently uh, recovered from, uh, from the Iranian Revolution in terms of its oil production. Oil production absolutely plummeted after 1979, in part due to sanctions and in part due to this like failure to invest into uh, new technologies, and only in, I believe, 2016 did they actually match the level of oil production that they had in, in 1979. Uh, again, the, the economy of Iran has been sort of in a rut and, and actually declining over the past uh, couple of years. There has been a very long regime of sanctions. The 2012 ones hit especially hard, uh, but there's very low levels of investment in the Iranian economy uh, and high unemployment. By the same token, though, Iran is a, is a pretty large country. It's about 81 million inhabitants, and it's a, a huge potential market. It has a relatively high human development index, and uh, not many sort of Western technological companies have been able to tap that market, which would be a, a pretty big windfall for, for these companies. And can you give us a little background on why the U.S. decided to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal? Well, there were a couple of different reasons. Um, the rationale behind this data-driven approach was I wanted to figure out what the economic repercussions might be for the U.S. withdrawal. And it turns out that the U.S.'s trade relationship with Iran is actually fairly minimal. So on the economic front, there's, there's almost no impact for them. There is potentially lost investments from companies like Boeing, but that's about it. Um, the reason that the Trump administration gave for the withdrawal of Iran was that even though Iran was complying with the letter of the, uh, the Iran nuclear deal, also sometimes referred to as the GCPOA, um, they were violating the spirit of the agreement in the sense that there were allegations that Iran was funneling money towards uh, strategic enemies of the United States, such as Syrian President Bashar al-Assad or Hezbollah and other um, terrorist organizations. That's why President Trump decided to invalidate the nuclear deal. Uh, whether that is valid or not is a different question entirely. The Iran nuclear deal was explicitly designed to help Iran's economy, uh, but now as the deal is falling apart, where does that leave Iran and the other parties involved? So without a doubt, the the biggest loser uh, for this nuclear deal falling apart is, is Iran. Uh, Iran reverts essentially to a, a 2012 uh, state where, uh, economic state where they will not be able to trade with a lot of these new markets. Similarly, uh, uh, European, the European Union and the Republic of Korea will lose this newly found source of oil and will have to find, find a replacement. Now that's, it's not a huge problem for them, but it's also a lost business opportunity for European companies. For, for instance, Airbus, uh, as well as the French energy giant Total, uh, both were seeking to make major deals with Iran, and that avenue for, for doing business and generating revenue for these countries has been largely closed now. 
So on the flip side, you could also ask uh, who wins in the nuclear deal falling apart. And the data indicates that it's, it's primarily China, mostly because the, uh, the lifting of sanctions offered new vectors for economic collaboration with Iran that are now closed. So the Iranian economy in, before the sanctions was already really, before the sanctions being lifted, was already really dependent on China. And it will now have to double down on China. And Rouhani and, and Xi Jinping have already discussed actually strengthening collaboration and strategic partnership with Iran. Iran is also a critical, critical hub for their One Belt, One Road uh, initiative. And if you, if you look at a world map and try to connect Europe to China, you either need to go to Russia or you need to go through Iran. So Iran really is a critical uh, strategic, geostrategic stronghold for uh, China to hold on to. On a more rhetorical level, you could say that Israel and the Gulf states uh, have won. Like Israel and especially Saudi Arabia were really strongly against the Iran nuclear deal, uh, which to some degree goes back to the antipathy and hostility between these three nations. Uh, and for Saudi Arabia, it's also that uh, Iran is a rival oil-producing nation that might cut into their market share. Now, Paul, I notice when you're talking about the winners and the losers of the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, uh, the U.S. itself is conspicuously absent. Uh, can you elaborate a bit on uh, the consequences for the U.S.? Um, so part of, the, part of the reason why we wanted to look into this was we wanted to figure out if the U.S. actually had any economic interest in maintaining and uh, remaining in the nuclear deal. Uh, the answer is essentially uh, not really. There, there are some American companies that might have a benefit of it, in it, but the U.S. by and large does not really trade with Iran, or at least not within the top 10 uh, countries that trade with Iran. This makes some sense as well because the, the United States is a net exporter of oil, so they don't really have any need for the primary uh, products that, that, that uh, Iran would sell. On the front of the winners and losers uh, discussion, here you get into sort of more more opinion. One could argue that the U.S. is a big loser in all of this because it has lost a tremendous amount of soft power. It, it did not stand by its commitment to a nuclear deal, which then weakens the U.S.'s ability to say, trust me, uh, we, can, we can cut a deal without needing to set it into stone and we can cooperate together on a bilateral level. And we'll see if that actually ends up being relevant for the, the North Korea nuclear agreement. So where do you see this going forward, particularly given that the European Union has indicated that they very much want to stay in the deal? Uh, that's, that's a really good question. It's not entirely clear yet what will happen, but to contextualize it a little bit, the main reason why the European Union is sort of hesitant about actually continuing the deal is because they risk getting hit by secondary sanctions. And this goes back to the, to the idea that the United States is just such a big actor in the international world order that if if you trade with a country that's on the U.S. sanctions list, you will lose access to the U.S. financial system, so the banking system. Uh, and in particular for Europe, this is really, really bad because uh, Europe is entirely dependent on the U.S.'s banking system, or at least to a large extent, and especially corporations are, are contingent on this, this trading system. And if you get kicked out of it, you're going to incur massive losses. You're not going to be able to maintain your headquarters in the United States. You're not going to be able to sell to the United States. There's all sorts of issues that, that come up. And so how does this bode for the U.S.-EU relationship? Well, in, in sort of pure diplomatic terms, the falling apart of the U.S. Uh, of the Iran nuclear deal is the biggest diplomatic break with uh, Europe that has been so far. And it's emblematic of these 
these wedge issues that are that are creating more and more friction between the United States and uh, and Europe. So look at your Paris agreements, uh, look at your the NATO commitment, or look at the Iran nuclear deal now, and even the the, the possible impending trade war between the United States and and the EU. So it's becoming more and more clear that the EU and the US are in this sort of uh, almost destructive relationship with each other where they can't really, or at least under this current administration, they can't really find avenues to collaborate on that, that they can trust. And this is also a sentiment that has been expressed by, by Angela Merkel of, of Germany that the EU is on its own. So aside from the key players in this dynamic that you've already mentioned, are there any countries that showed up in the data analysis in your snapshot on Iran that we have not touched on yet? Yeah, so there's basically two that are interesting. Uh, One is Russia. Uh, Russia is not a a huge trading partner of Iran. I, I believe it is in the top 10. But mostly Russia is interesting because it sells a lot of arms to uh, to Iran and and arms arms exports are always a very political form of trade that that carries huge uh, strategic implications. Uh, you're less likely to, to go to war with the country that you sell arms to, obviously. Uh, another one that's really interesting is actually the United uh, Arab Emirates, uh, because they have they have vastly increased their share of uh, Iranian imports, actually. They're, they're the biggest growers in terms of selling stuff to Iran. And they have historically also maintained a not entirely transparent trading relationship. Uh, for example, something like $80 billion of their trade in 2016 is from countries that aren't specified um, on the import side. So they're, they're not really disclosing where they're getting their goods from. And it's possible that they would continue operating as sort of a pragmatic trader in the Middle East that would help to continue trading with Iran, even if sanctions are are reinstated. Okay, and that's interesting because I see on this, your second figure in your snapshot, uh, that the largest change in import share per partner was actually the United Arab Emirates. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, so, so the UAE has long acted as a pragmatic trader in the region. Uh, they, they're, they're essentially in the business of doing business. So they don't, they don't try to get that engaged into local politics and they're willing to trade with whoever wants to trade with them. Uh, there's a long history of them bypassing sanctions of, of selling Iranian oil uh, on the market without specifying that it's Iranian oil. So it's, it's quite possible that we'll continue doing this. It's hard obviously to put a number onto it because the data is not there. Um, and as I said, the, a large, large section of UAE imports is in fact from countries that aren't specified. And to put it into perspective, the, the trade relationship that the UAE has with these unspecified regions that are not identified is three times larger than their trade relationships with China, which is their second largest trader. And what are the trends you're going to be looking at from a strategic foresight perspective uh, for Iran specifically? Yeah, so I think no matter which way you look at it, Iran's going to be an important actor in the region. It's a large economy, it's uh, very strategically located, and it's, uh, it has a lot of natural resources. And indeed, natural resources is one of the things that I would keep track of when thinking about the strategic implications of Iran. Uh, it has a huge amount of natural gas, for instance, as well as oil. And for better or for worse, natural gas is going to be one of these bridging fuels for the 21st century with, with respect to climate change. And a lot of the shifting geopolitics that you see in the Middle East these days has to do with the exploitation of natural gas. Um, which brings me to the second trend, which is this uh, the breakdown in cohesion between the 
the Gulf states in particular. So the Qatar embargo is a good example of uh, of a sort of tangible shift in how the Gulf states deal with each other, also vis-a-vis Iran, uh, that has to do with natural resources and also state-funded terrorism. So that's another thing that you really need to keep in mind. What is Iran's role regionally? And then the third thing on the sort of national level uh, is Iranian politics. Uh, The right wing in Iran has always been against nuclear deal uh, and they've been sort of handed a opportunity to say, you know, we were right, you were you were wrong to trust the great Satan, which is America. Uh, And it'll remain to be seen what happens to especially President Rouhani, who put a lot of political capital on the line to try and uh, do this sort of reproach him with with the West. And if the right wing of Iranian politics gets back into power, we'll see where that where that takes their domestic development. Okay, well, thank you very much, Paul, for coming in and speaking with us today. You're most welcome. Uh, You can download Paul's snapshot on Iran from our website, hcss.nl. And if you would like to hear more of our analysis here at HCSS, as well as stay informed about our latest podcast episodes, please follow us on our social media channels or subscribe to our newsletter also via the website.